If you have a Bible with you, please turn it to Romans 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And if you grab that Bible, you can find Romans 13 on page 892. As we have mentioned in our prayer, this was a major week in U.S. politics for good and, quite honestly, potentially for bad. A major opinion was leaked from the U.S. Supreme Court uh, that seems to be poised and ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. This is incredibly good news for many of us who have longed for the day in which the precedent of Roe v. Wade would be overturned so that no longer would the precedent in the court be to see a woman's right to abort a living being as a fundamental right guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. It's a major win for those of us who are pro-life, who believe that this is a step toward protecting the most vulnerable and oppressed people in the world and giving rights to people who have long lacked it. The bad news is, of course, that it was leaked. And it was leaked before the Supreme Court honestly got to make it official. It was leaked likely, although not with any certainty, to put pressure on those very justices who would have been voting for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It is not settled yet. We need to continue to be in prayer for it. It is by the providence of God that that particular ruling happened to come out and happened to be leaked the week of Mother's Day. It's a day in which we celebrate the goodness of moms, and we are thankful for that ruling and the appropriateness of it on Mother's Day when we expect and long for women of every economic status, of every difficult circumstance, to know the blessing and the joy of having children. Let's be honest. We want more people to understand the goodness of Mother's Day. Not because we want the world to be overrun with babies. Trust me, I know all about being overrun with babies. I've got enough of them. And certainly some of you think the same about your own families. That's true. We don't need the world to be overrun by babies. But we do need people to realize that babies and children are a blessing from the Lord and a good in and of themselves. They're worthy of dignity and protection. And so we celebrate today. We celebrate what has happened, but it's not time to simply celebrate. Because we need to be reminded of why we wanted that particular thing to happen in the first place. So long as you think that Roe v. Wade should have been overturned because what you needed to do was make women understand the morality of their decision, your work is over. If you think that Roe v. Wade is going to be the end all and it was the only thing that we were really gunning for, if it was the major end of all of our efforts in praying and protesting and and seeking to help moms and seeking to educate people, if you think that that was the rightful end, it is solely because you wanted to enforce your morality on others. I'm actually okay with that. We enforce morality on others all the time. This is why we tell people, you shouldn't murder because it's bad. And we want to enforce that morality on people. But I don't think that that is the primary goal. And I don't think that that's the primary reason why we should have wanted that rule to be overturned. It wasn't because we wanted our morality to be reflected in everyone else and forced on everybody else. It was primarily because we ought to love our neighbors. Our neighbors who are unborn. Our neighbors who are vulnerable. Our neighbors who are oppressed. Our neighbors who have their lives threatened. Our neighbors neighbors who have no rights. We love them and we seek their good. That is why we wanted this rule overturned. But if that was truly our reasoning, which I think it ought to have been, 
then our work is far from over. Because we are not called to love the unborn, but not love the mothers who bear them. And what's more, to not even love the fathers who have conceived them. We are called to love all of them. So we ought to not just care about making sure that women can't abort, but we ought to care about the women who don't abort, care about the women who have aborted, care about the children who are there now, that we might take care of them and help mothers and fathers and families who need our help to take care of them. Let us be what we have said we were all along, loving neighbors. Because make no doubt about it, the enemies of people who are pro-life have their eyes wholly and completely fixed on us now. Because they have long since said that the only time and the only thing we truly care about is that child when it is in utero. And as soon as it ceases to be a child in utero, we don't show love or care or concern for it anymore. If it lives in squalid economic circumstances, if it has no opportunities in life, if it, if it has poor health care, we just don't care, they say. Well, let us remember then 1 Peter 2.15. There Peter writes, This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put this to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We are not going to silence our critics by writing better Facebook posts. We're not going to do it by preaching better sermons. We're not going to do it with fancy rhetoric. And we certainly aren't going to do it by getting laws passed and cheering for them. Peter says very clearly, you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. So, do good. We're not done. We're just starting If we are going to silence people who claim that the church is filled with hypocrites, we won't do it by telling them that we're not hypocrites. We will do it only by showing them that we're not hypocrites. Our work then starts today. And, given this, it is providential that not only did that leak happen the week of Mother's Day, but for us particularly, that week happened, the leak that, that came out from the Supreme Court happened the day that we happened to be on Romans 13 of all the passages in Scripture. Romans 13 is an incredibly important passage in Scripture. We oftentimes struggle with how we are supposed to relate to earthly authorities in this world. How are Christians supposed to engage in public policy making? How are we supposed to handle laws that are passed down that we don't agree with, that we feel as though run counter to what is good for society. Certainly we can turn to the Old Testament for this and we can see what God's law would say. But at the same time, we recognize that there is a a real distinction between God ruling over his people directly in the nation of Israel and how the New Testament is always set up. That we are members of two distinct kingdoms, two distinct countries, That we as Christians are members of a country that is not of this earth. We are members of a kingdom that does not belong to the places of this earth. While at the same time, we are here, citizens of the United States of America. The New Testament begins with this understanding. After all, Israel is is a state that is subjected by the Roman authorities, trying to trap Jesus. The 
Pharisees and the Sadducees send people to him to see if he will speak a bad word against Israel or a bad word against Rome. And Jesus says, render unto Caesar. Peter, in the passage we've already read from, insists on much the same trajectory. You are to honor the emperor. Paul makes mention of this in several ways. Usually just a, a brief line here or a brief line there. But for some reason, in Romans 13, we have the longest, the clearest, and the most uh, thorough treatment of how Christians are to handle governing authorities which are over them. So let us turn to that passage and read these seven important verses today and hear what Paul has to say to us about how is the, what is the most important way in which we relate to the authorities over us. Paul writes here in the book of Romans, in chapter 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is indeed the word of our God. I have a number of things to kind of go through and say to you today. You'll notice that you don't have a handout. It's primarily because there was one main point and the rest of it is just kind of flying off of that. And so we're going to talk for the vast majority of the time about that one main point and I didn't think it was necessary to have a handout to talk about that. So just kind of play along with me and follow along with the passage that is at hand and hopefully we can get somewhere this morning. What is the main point of this? We don't really know why Paul writes what he writes here. It seems to kind of come out of the blue. Scholars have long debated as to what kind of implied that Paul needed to spend this much time writing about something that he spends not that much time writing on anywhere else. Why were the Romans particular in this? Some people think that there were zealots who were here, people who really truly wanted to physically fight against Rome and end Rome's rule. Some people perhaps would think that Christians now knowing that they've cried out, Jesus is Lord, which is clearly a crying out of a Lord that is different than Caesar, where they don't just say Caesar is Lord. They might say, well, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar can't be Lord. We can't, we can't have two Lords because Jesus told us we can't have two masters, so maybe we don't need to be subject to Caesar anymore. Both of those are possible, but I think less likely than the third option, which is that the taxes in Rome were just astronomical. Scholars have studied this, and they found that the taxes were oppressive. And because Christians were typically of the lower classes, they would have been clearly oppressive to them. And so what Paul is really doing is writing to his people, saying, guys, you've got to pay your taxes. We'll get around to that. But one of the things that hits us when we first read this passage is while we might not be sure of why Paul wrote it, it's really clear what he writes. 
There's very few statements in Paul that are quite this clear. As a matter of fact, it's so clear that immediately we begin to say, that can't quite be right. And not even in like an unfaithful way. We just, we hear these words and we think immediately, well, yeah, Paul says that, but there's qualifications to this stuff. There, there have got to be situations in which Paul would not agree, even with what he's got written here. When the governing authorities would look at him and say, hey, you can preach Christ no more, we have every reason to believe that Paul would stand with the apostolic tradition of saying, well, whether or not you think it's right for us to obey God or you, you decide, but we cannot help but speak of that which we have heard and seen. So there are boundaries. I think that it's clear. More than that, I think it's clear that Paul would have known that there were boundaries. But I think that this is a bad way to handle the text. So think through this with me as we kind of work our way through the text. We live in a country that has guaranteed us the right of first importance. Number one with a bullet is the First Amendment. Actually, number two is the bullet. But number one is the most important one, where we are granted free assembly, we are granted free speech, and freedom of religion. And we know that the Bill of Rights isn't like numbered in such a way that number one is more important than number two, and number two is more important than number three. It's not really ordered that way, but the first one kind of is. The first one is the most basic of fundamental rights. And no one in here has ever been threatened with police with federal authorities coming through the doors of their place of worship and saying, you guys cannot do this. You are standing against the state in what you are preaching and proclaiming. We live in a country that guarantees it. We live in a country that has, for the most part, backed that up. And we live in a country where it just doesn't happen. And even so, when we come to this, we read it and we say, but man, there's, there's got to be some limits there. Even we can understand that this just can't be the only way that we, we relate to the authorities. Even with all the freedoms we have, we know that there are qualifications here. And realize that Paul didn't live in the United States. Paul lived in Rome. Rome didn't guarantee him freedom of anything. You weren't allowed to say anything you wanted to say in Rome. You weren't allowed to worship any way you wanted to worship in Rome. They had a right to shut you down whenever they so chose and whenever they so pleased. Do you think that Paul was ignorant of those things? Yeah, Paul didn't, didn't know those things. Paul, Paul knew them very well. We know this even from the text. Like back in chapter 9, he gives us the most beautiful example of civil disobedience when he talks repeatedly about the fact that God raised Pharaoh up to demonstrate his power. What did he do? He pulled Moses up out of the desert and said, you're going to go back and you're going to disobey everything that Pharaoh tells you. You're going to stand in front of him and you're going to tell him what his business is, that you have no right telling him because I have told you to do it. Moses does so under the authority of God, denying the authority of Pharaoh in front of him. Even even the very fact that Moses is alive in order to do that is a sign that God understands and written into the word of God are qualifications on this very thing. In Exodus 1, we read this. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, 
when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. Pretty straightforward. They feared God over Pharaoh. They feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live, which would have included Moses. So God dealt with the midwives. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. It's quite clear that they disobeyed a direct command of the authority that was above them, and God blessed them for it. He treated them well because of it. For not to think that Paul doesn't know the story of Daniel, that there's a lion's den and a fiery furnace. He knows well these stories. But when we come to a text and we expect it's going to say something, and it doesn't, when that text is almost begging to say something and it never quite gets around to it, when we ask questions of a text that it just doesn't seem keen on answering at all, it's a really good indication that we're coming at the text all wrong. See, what Paul is interested in is not what the exclusions are. What Paul is interested in is not what the qualifications are, which I think he knows are the first things that we would run to and hang on to. I think that misses his point. What he wants to do is make his point clearly and forcefully so that you're not thinking of the limits but feel the full brunt of what Paul says, which is simply this. As a Christian, your first impulse and your gut reaction to any statement from an authority over you is to be submission. Full stop. Full stop. Your first initial reaction and your gut reaction should be submission. Not, I wonder if I can get away with not doing that. Or I, I wonder if this thing that they forbid me, if I can do it. Your gut reaction should not be that. Your gut reaction should be to be subject to the governing authorities. Not given over to how you feel. Not concerning whether you think the law is good or right or true or helpful. There must be, I think, a clear biblical warrant for you to resist and stand against the authority that God has put in place. And Paul makes it clear that that is the case. He says, I trust in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And as he's shown, God is sovereign over all events, over the wicked men who were to kill Jesus. God is sovereign to work that out for their good. Over your election, Paul says, God is sovereign over those things. If he is sovereign over eternal, if he is sovereign over spiritual things, and Paul reasons he is certainly sovereign over something as small as the President of the United States. And so, to stand against the edicts and the authority of those people who have been put in place by God, even if it's through the instrument of our voting for them, if they have been put in place by God, to disobey them without warrant is to disobey God. There is no way around what Paul is arguing there. That is straightforwardly what he is saying. So the authority, the ranking of it, goes God, when it comes to these sort of political, real, political realities, God, 
the state, and then you. The only time you get to circumvent the state is precisely when you have warrant from God to do so. Not when you feel like you should do so. Not because you don't like the law. Not because you think the law is dumb and stupid and hurtful. The only time you get to do it is when there is a direct command from God that you would be breaking. If you don't have that, I humbly submit to you, you have no right to break the law. None. The best example of this has got to be, for us, COVID. It is the example. This is the issue that church has had to work through in the past year. Two years now. Jeez, time, time does fly. Two years. I went back and I looked. These were this, the exact moments I was writing emails to our church repeatedly at this time as, as the elders were working through how we're going to change. So I would like to just take you through how the elders thought through things. I don't think we ever actually sat down and did that. Now is the perfect time to do that. When we first got hit with COVID, the elders made it very clear that we were not epidemiologists. We don't understand the ins and outs of how viruses work in populations. And so because of that, we were going to follow the recommendations that were laid out, especially early on when we didn't know exactly what we were dealing with. And so Crossway closed their doors, our doors, for about six, seven weeks. By the way, those six, seven weeks were horrible. They were horrible for me. They were horrible for you. It didn't please anybody. We didn't do it because we liked it. And I certainly wasn't on vacation because recording sermons to be putting online was way worse than preparing for sermons in person. Way worse. And you, are you laughing, Jimmy? Jimmy knows it. He, he's like, I watched those things. They were. They were bad. So it was way more difficult. Over time, we realized, okay, well, things have settled down. And we were, we were caught in a difficult spot, the way many churches were caught in a difficult spot. But we, and I think in a more particular way, because we were under no sort of blindness to think that simply because you watch a video in your house and I watch a video in my house, that we're somehow gathering together and worshiping together. We flat out reject that. We don't think that that's true at all. Now, you might have been given the word of God during that time, and you might have had, like, individual or family moments of worship, but Crossway Christian Church was not Crossway Christian Church during that time. We didn't gather together. It's just so happened that Michigan, and the governor's executive orders, always had a loophole. <laughs> that loophole... I think was oddly written. I think it was written by a governor or a group of people assisting the governor who had never actually known how a church works or how worship services work. But nevertheless, I think we fairly interpret it to be an exemption for religious communities to gather together. And so, because we were free to do so, we opened the church back up. But in order to honor what we thought was the governor's wishes to show her honor and respect, the elders at first said, hey, if we're going to meet together, y'all are going to have six feet of separation, you're going to stay in family units, you're going to wear masks. Now, as it so happens over time, people, and again, I want to be very clear about this because you need to be encouraged in this, who had complaints about that, didn't complain about it. Even the word complaint isn't quite good. I think that they probably had complaints about it, but they handled it well. 
They came respectfully to the elders and asked us about it. They, they talked to us about their difficulties with it. And pretty soon the elders realized that we've, we've overstepped our bounds. We, we can't force you to wear masks. We, we just can't do that. Because that is something that isn't within our purview as the authority of elders to do. And what's more, that was something that was quite clearly by the elders, or excuse me, by the governor's own executive order, you were told you didn't have to do. So we rescinded that. We said, you don't have to. We, we gladly encouraged people to. We said, you don't have to. Now, all of that would have looked completely and totally different if we were in a place like Washington, D.C., or California, because both of those places didn't let anybody gather. And the pastors who were in Washington, D.C., and pastors in California had to wrestle with Romans 13 in a way that we didn't. Our governor, whether you like her or not, made life very easy on churches because she said from the get-go, you can meet. You can meet. That was not the way that other states handled this issue. And it would have looked completely different if we were in Texas or Florida. So we've had to wrestle through these issues. The reason why we could do that, though, was specifically because we had an exemption. We had an exemption where we could enter in those doors or the doors of the old building, and we could sit with one another, and we could do so without masks. However, friends, that would never, never extend to your walking into Walmart. Unless you had a medical exemption to walk into Walmart at that time without a mask, to defy the authority of the state without clear biblical warrant, and if you think you've got clear biblical warrant for why you shouldn't have to wear a mask walking into Walmart, I would love to hear it. Without that biblical warrant, you were in sin if you did that, specifically in defiance to the state authorities. Because there's nothing in Scripture that says that you don't have to wear a mask. There's nothing there. It's difficult, but this is the gut instinct that Christians ought to have, not to fight the authorities, but unless we have good biblical warrant, which doesn't mean that you don't have to have a clear one sentence in, in Scripture that you can come to. You, you, you can actually reason from the Scriptures, but it's got to be good. The burden of proof is on us, in other words. And that comes through because Paul is not clarifying that position at all here. He's not qualifying it. He's not putting an asterisk next to it. He's not saying, hey, this is the cases that you can get away with this, and this aren't the cases. He's just saying, you are subject to the governing authorities. As you are subject to God, so you are subject to them. Now, the ESV has a mistake, and you might have noticed that when I read it, I didn't read certain words. The ESV at the end of verse 4 and in verse 5 talks about the wrath that the state carries out as God's wrath. That is flat out an interpretation. It is not a translation. I have no idea what the ESV was thinking there because the word God doesn't exist there at all. The Christian Standard Bible basically has the exact same translation, only they drop the word God because it's just not in the text. Now, what Paul is saying there is not that they're carrying out the wrath of God on you, but they're carrying out their own wrath on you. When you do bad, you are punished for it. And I think that bad and good here is at least partially understood by bad and good in light of what the state has said. So the state says, you can't do this thing, or you must do this thing. 
If you don't do the thing that they say you must, or you do the thing that they say you can't, they're going to punish you for it. And Paul is saying, if you want to avoid it, do what the state tells you to do. Now, quite clearly, there are times when you can't do that. We've talked about those cases. Not all of them, because we can't list all of them. But, you know, if the state said, brothers and sisters, you are not to meet at all simply because we don't like Christianity, I think that we would say, okay, we'll come and arrest us. The point is that the state is doing what it needs to do. Now, obviously, that does mean that sometimes we will be punished for doing things that God has called us to do that the state forbids. And when that happens, Peter has an admonishment for us. He says, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, and there I think he means mindful of Christ, given the fact that his example for how you are to live this out is Christ on the cross, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says, you've got to think of Jesus in this situation. Jesus suffered unjustly. He did it without opening his mouth. He did it without complaining. He did it by entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So ought you. When you do wrong, the state can inflict their wrath upon you for your harm. Therefore, Paul goes on to say that you are not to abstain. You are to submit yourself not only to avoid wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. What Paul means there is not that if your conscience pings you, that you get to skip out on whatever the state is commanding of you or forbidding you. He actually means the opposite. He says you submit for your conscience. I think for two reasons for your conscience. One, so that your conscience might be better formed in understanding the role of the state when it comes to understanding how God's authority works through the natural order of things. And secondly, so that your conscience isn't pinging you as guilty when you do something that the state has said that's wrong, that you don't have biblical warrant for. But what Paul definitely does not mean, what he definitely does not mean, is that if you don't feel right about doing something that you can't find a clear example of in Scripture, that that feeling alone is enough to keep you from it. That's clearly not what Paul means. I think more than that, he means that it helps to shape and to form your conscience, rightly ordering it amongst the, the, the law and the order of God. Paul gives a couple of examples of what this means. First, as we said before, he's looking at these Christians and he's saying, pay your taxes. He actually says it twice just to make sure it gets home. You are to pay your taxes. I'm sure that they were incredibly high back in the day. I'm sure that you think that your taxes are high, and I'm sure the Romans said you don't know anything about high taxes, especially because they were typically, Christians were typically the poorest of the poor, and these taxes would have been incredibly regressive and oppressive to them. Yet still, Paul says, you are to pay your taxes. Paying taxes, I think, is a clear and relevant form of submitting to the government. It's not the only way that we submit to the government, but it is a clear way in which we submit to the government. And notice... Paul is saying this about Rome. You might look around America and you might say, listen, our governor, our president want to use our tax money in a number of ways that is immoral, unethical, rancid. I don't think that I want my money polluted by that. Friend, if you think that America uses tax dollars wrong, let me introduce you to Rome. Rome would have been misusing tax dollars all over the place. 
Rome would have been incredibly immoral in the way in which they used their tax dollars. And Paul is not stupid. And yet he looks at these people and he says, pay your taxes. You don't get to get out of paying your taxes simply because you think that, you know, they're going to do immoral things with it. Paul says, no, no, you pay your taxes. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And lastly, he focuses on respect and honor being paid. As an aspect of submission, respect and honor the leaders that are before you. You don't need to like them. You don't need to think well of them. Paul's not telling you that you can only praise them. You can be quiet about it. You don't need to say anything about them at all. And I would even go so far as to tell you that there's some leeway as to how you think about them. I think that we've got to be careful with that because I think that we also have to have a posture of love, not only in the things that we do, but how we feel about people. But I think that there are certain things that you can feel so long as they don't make it out into the public consumption. Because honor and respect are primarily public things. So regardless of who the president is, if it's Trump or it's Biden, if it's Obama or it's Bush, regardless of who the president is, no Christian is at any point in time to do anything publicly to bring disrespect or disrepute upon that president or upon the governor or upon the local officials. You can disagree with them. You can protest. The, the, the government gives you the right to do that. You can say this legislation is bad for these reasons. But if you are seeking straightforwardly to dishonor somebody, to insult them, I don't, you, you have to come to me and help me understand how Romans 13 should be understood, how 1 Peter should be understood, because it seems really clear. These were emperors. They were worshipped as gods. And Paul says, still honor them because God put them in place. Do not speak bad about the president. Do not seek to defame him or dishonor him. But rather, what Paul says is, give him honor because he's due honor for the fact that he is president and God has put him there. Again, you don't need to like him. You can, you can have all of the dislike for the policies and the things that he puts in place, and senators and congressmen and all of them. But you have to honor him. There is a reason why for all of this. We can put up with bad presidents. Every president's going to be bad. They're going to have something that they're going to do, and you're going to be like, oh, goodness. I wish you wouldn't have done that. There's always going to be things that personally will upset you because, after all, the person who is going to be president for at least four years is going to have the greatest spotlight shined on them. And every single bad word that they speak, every single thing that goes wrong is always going to be blamed on. There's always something to find. If, if that was the truth of any of our lives, if you had the same spotlight shined on your life that has shined on their life, no doubt we would find things that really annoyed us about you. Frankly, that's true of me, and I don't even have that much of a spotlight shine on me. Plenty of you are annoyed with me right now. So, we can put up with that, though. We can put up with that because this is a temporal reality. This is not the entire game for us because we have a king who exists in a kingdom that cannot be seen with eyes who is lovely, wise, just, merciful, gracious. We have a king who handles our affairs 
with perfect righteousness every time. So we talk here that this is not the wrath of God that the state lays out. But the state is acting, at least in a form, as a symbol of God. They are acting like God. When you do the things that they forbid you to do, wrath will come. When you do the things, when you don't do the things that they tell you you must do, wrath will come. This is no different than the way God works. If you do wrong, will not God avenge? Will not God bring justice upon the earth? He will. But we serve an incredibly gracious God who by putting his son in our place has taken his wrath for us and the penalty that was due to us has been placed on him so that everyone who confesses in the Lord Jesus Christ and believes is transported out of this earthly kingdom and into another one which is where we will make our home forever so we can put up with all of the temporal stupidity you want to throw at us. We can put up with all the bad laws It doesn't mean that we're going to follow all of them. It doesn't mean that we're going to do everything that you command us to. It means that we will think wisely about it. We will think together about it. We will think and reason from Scripture about it. But our gut instinct will be to submit because we fear God more. So acting and so doing is nothing less than simply an act of faith. Show that you belong to that better kingdom. Show that you belong to a better God. Show that you belong to a better king who always rules justly. And so when he speaks to you and he tells you, you must act like this, you will say, amen, for it is for my good that he commands me thus. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult words for us. Perhaps it's just... Americans have this built into our DNA, a desire to stand up to authority. Perhaps it's just because authority is often misused wherever it's found. Regardless of the reasons, help us to walk faithfully in this world under your sovereign leadership. We don't always know why the leaders are chosen by your kind and good hand, especially when rampant foolishness in this world is the result. But the cross has taught us to trust in your ways. For when night is darkest, you seem to bring forth the dawn when foolishness and evil are at their apex. You bring forth your son from the tomb. So we trust you, and we walk by that trust. But we do confess, our Lord, it's difficult. So we ask for help, for grace, for comfort, for aid as we do so. And all the more for our brothers and sisters who live under more difficult authorities and more difficult situations. All of this needs to be treated with grace and kindness. Let that be our lot. Not only to obey your word, but to be gracious and humble before one another in that. For those who are in more difficult situations, we pray that you would give them discernment and strength in all things that your people would act in honorable ways in the world, that the world might see it and know how great our God is. So we ask these things for your glory, and for our good. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our hymn of response, All I Have is Christ.